and welcome back to USMLE Listen. This is Microbiology Chapter 5, Gram-Negative Bacteria Only. Whether you're on a run or driving, this is a perfect podcast to initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1. In this episode, it's all about USMLE important gram-negative bacteria, so important exam-related information. We're going to review the features, transmission and predisposing factors, the pathogenesis, the diseases associated, treatment, as well as important info to know for the exam. As always, you can email us at usmlelisten at gmail.com for your questions, anything you need cleared, or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning for the step one. Sources for USMLE Listen include First Aid Osmosis URL and Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark Labella, and let's begin. We begin with gram-negative cocci. There are two gram-negative cocci that we're talking about, and they're usually gram-negative diplococci with flattened sides. They're both oxidase positive, oxidase positive. and they are Neisseria meningitidis and Neisseria gonorrhea. We're going to start off really easy here and just ask a couple of questions to warm up your brain. And you have a 50-50 chance of getting it right. The answer is either Neisseria meningitidis or Neisseria gonorrhea. The first question, one of these bacteria have a capsule. The answer is Neisseria meningitidis. Neisseria meningitidis has the capsule. Number two, which of the two bacteria you get vaccination for? The answer, Neisseria meningitidis. Number three, which one is a respiratory entry and which one is a genital entry? And that's too easy to ask a question about, and that's meningitis is your respiratory and Neisseria gonorrhea is your genital. But here's a good one. Which one of them ferments glucose? The answer, both. They both ferment glucose. So here's question number five. Which one ferments maltose? The answer, the M in meningitis means that it ferments maltose, while Neisseria gonorrhea does not ferment maltose. Last question, which one of them has a common beta-lactamase production? One of them has a rare beta-lactamase production, and the other one has a common beta-lactamase production. The answer is Neisseria gonorrhea has a common beta-lactamase production. Neisseria meningitidis has the following distinguishing features. Gram-negative kidney bean-shaped diplococci has a large capsule, latex particle agglutination positive, or CIE, which is otherwise known as counter-immunoelectrophoresis, to identify the Neisseria meningitidis capsular antigens in the CSF. It grows on chocolate agar, not blood agar by the way, in 5% carbon dioxide atmosphere. And as I just mentioned, it ferments maltose in contrast contrast to gonorrhea, which doesn't ferment maltose. The pathogenesis includes important virulence factors such as polysaccharide capsule, which is antiphagocytic. It's antigenic. It has five common serogroups, but serogroup B is not strongly immunogenic, which is made up of sialic acid. The B strain is the most common strain in the United States, and it's used for serogrouping, detection in CSF, and vaccine. Neisseria meningitidis also has IgA protease, which allows the oropharynx for colonization. Neisseria meningitidis also has an endotoxin, and that endotoxin is a lipooligosaccharide. It is the thing that causes fever, septic shock, and meningococcemia, and overproduction of the outer membrane. You have a pili and an outer membrane proteins that are important in ability to colonize and invade. 
A deficiency in your complement components, C5 to C8, will predispose you to Neisseria meningitidis infection. That terminal complement pathway deficiency from C5 to C8, which are part of the membrane attack complex, people with this condition are prone to meningococcal infection. Vaccination is recommended and important. Of course, the diseases that are caused by Neisseria meningitidis are meningitis and meningococcemia. They're both abrupt onset with fever, chills, malaise, prostration, and a rash that is generally petechial rash. The patient goes into rapid decline, and you'll have, and your fulminant cases will have ecchymosis, disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, shock, coma, and death caused by a syndrome called Watterson-Fredrickson syndrome, which caused the adrenals to shut down and have multi-organ failure. You diagnose Neisseria meningitidis by gram stain of the CSF, PCR, and latex agglutination, ampicillin, and cefataxime in neonates or infants. Once again, neonates and infants get ampicillin and cefataxime. In older infants, children, and adults, you give them cefataxime or cefatriaxone with or without vancomycin. How do you prevent it? You can have vaccines against it, or you we have vaccines against it, as a matter of fact, with capsular polysaccharide of strains Y, W135, C, and A. The type B is, which is 50% of US cases, the capsule is not a good immunogen. And what does B have? It has sialic acid. The meningococcal sialic acid capsule prophylaxis to meningococcemia is administered with rifampin or ciprofloxacin. And though our prophylaxis is rifampin or ciprofloxacin, our treatment, remember, is ceftriaxone. For neonates, we give them ampicillin. For prophylaxis, your rifampin inhibits mRNA synthesis or RNA polymerase. Your alternative prophylaxis which is ciprofloxacin, is a quinolone, and fluoroquinolones inhibit DNA topoisomerases, or DNA gyrase. In the treatment for neonates, the ampicillin is a beta-lactam, which interrupts the peptidoglycan cross-linking. The alternative for neonates for their treatment of meningitis is cefataxime, which is a third-generation cephalosporin, and the treatment for adults is ceftriaxone or cefataxime, which are both third-generation cephalosporins, and they interrupt peptidoglycan cross-linking. Neisseria gonorrhea. Distinguishing features include gram-negative kidney bean-shaped diplococci, also diplococci by the way. Reservoir is human genital tract. The transmission of Neisseria gonorrhea is sexual contact or birth, and it's sensitive to drying and cold. Your pathogenesis for your gonorrhea is your pili, and we went over this in another episode that pili is super important with gonorrhea because it is attachment to the mucosal surfaces, and the gonorrhea, the Neisseria gonorrhea inhibits phagocytic uptake with it, with the pili. It's antigenic and immunogenic, and the variation is more than 1 million variants of pili with gonorrhea. That is exactly why it's so hard to create a gonorrhea vaccine. There are 1 million variants of that pili, so it's so hard to protect ourselves against it through vaccination. The outer membrane proteins are another thing that makes us sick. OMP1, or outer membrane protein 1, is a structural antigen used in serotyping. The OPA proteins, or opacity, cause an 
an antigenic variation or adherence. Gonorrhea also has IgA protease, which aids in colonization and cellular uptake. Gonorrhea invades the mucosal surfaces and they cause inflammation, which is why gonorrhea is so painful. But women can be asymptomatic. In males, you can get urethritis or proctitis, but in females, you can get endocervicitis and PID with contiguous spread. Pelvic inflammatory disease with contiguous spread. Women can get arthritis as well as proctitis. Infants will have ophthalmia, which rapidly leads to blindness if untreated, called ophthalmia neonatorum. Neisseria gonorrhea are intracellular gram-negative diplococci in polymorphonucleated cells. From urethral smears, you can find them, and their symptomatic males are suggestive of Neisseria gonorrhea. Commonly, though, you diagnose by genetic probes with amplification testing. You culture when you're done on a Thayer Martin medium with oxidase-positive colonies, maltose is not fermented, and there is no capsule with Neisseria gonorrhea. The treatment is ceftriaxone, which is a third-generation cephalosporin, interrupts the peptidoglycan cross-linking. You also test for chlamydia or treat with oxycycline at the same time. Penicillin-binding protein mutations led to gradual increases in penicillin resistance in the 70s, and it's because of these plasmid-mediated beta-lactamase. Plasmid-mediated beta-lactamase. It produces high-level penicillin resistance. How do you prevent Neisseria gonorrhea? Duh. Condoms. There's no vaccine. With neonates, you give them silver nitrate erythromycin ointment in the eyes right at birth. So Mark, how can you differentiate between the different neonatal conjunctivitis or the ophthalmia neonatorum that you see in babies? Alright, with Neisseria gonorrhea, the onset is within 5 days, while chlamydia, the onset of neonatal conjunctivitis with chlamydia trachomatis is 5 days to 5 weeks. It's after 5 days. With gonorrhea, the inflammation is extensive and it's very painful. Pain is a big clue here for the babies, while the inflammation on the eyelids on the babies with chlamydia is minimal. In gonorrhea, there is corneal involvement, while chlamydia does not have corneal involvement. Babies with gonorrhea have a complication of corneal rupture, while babies with chlamydia have pneumonia as a complication. The third gram-negative diplococci is Moraxella catarralis, which is a gram-negative diplococcus. It's a close relative of Neisseria, so that's why you sometimes see them grouped together. But Moraxella catarralis is a little bit more like gonorrhea as opposed to meningitidis because Moraxella catarralis is a non-maltose fermenter. The only one out of these three that ferments maltose is Neisseria meningitidis. Alright, so Moraxella catarralis is normally in your upper respiratory respiratory tract flora. It's spread through respiratory droplets and it's pathogenesis. It has a, an endotoxin that may play a role in the disease. And the diseases that I'm talking about are 1. Otitis media, 2. Sinusitis, and 3. Bronchitis or bronchopneumonia in elderly patients with COPD. One of the top three most common causes of otitis media in children. So what exactly are those top three? Number one is strapneumo, number two is hemophilus, and number three is moraxella catarralis, cause of otitis media in children. Drug resistance is a problem with moraxella catarralis, and most strains produce beta-lactamase. But we usually use amoxicillin plus clavulinate, second or third generation cephalosporin, or TMPSMX, or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Amoxiclav usually does the trick.
Just remember that gram-negative cocci are oxidase-positive. Oxidase are the cytochrome C oxidase test. Flood the colony with phenylenediamine in the presence of oxidase. Phenylenediamine turns black. That is a rapid test. Major oxidase-negative gram-negative group is enterobacteriaceae. And that's also important to remember. So Mark, how am I supposed to like remember that? Alright, so how you remember that is VP Chen. Vice President Chen. Vice President Chen for oxidase positive organisms. And Vice President Chen or VP Chen stands for V for Vibrio, P for Pseudomonas, C for Campylobacter, H for H. pylori, E for exclude the Enterobacteriaceae because that is a negative test, and N for Neisseria. Remember a major oxidase negative gram negative group is Enterobacteriaceae, and that's in your VP Chen mnemonic. The key clues when you're having your case in USMLE are the following. In meningococcal meningitis, you'll see gram-negative diplococci in your CSF because it's meningitis, right? And it's usually in young adults with meningitis, and it's abrupt onset with signs of endotoxin toxicity. With the Neisseria gonorrhea, key clues to remember there for your patients are they're sexually active, there's some sort of urethra or vaginal discharge or leukorrhea, Arthritis is definitely possible, and you get with the babies, you have neonatal ophthalmia and gram-negative diphlococci in neutrophils. In a previous podcast, we went over lipooligosaccharides, and that is a very strong here in Neisseria. There's a very strong endotoxin activity with Neisseria species. Neisseria gonorrhea, though, is often intracellular and is within the neutrophils. So let's compare the two. In gonococci, you have no polysaccharide capsule. Meningococci has a polysaccharide capsule. Gonococci does not have maltose acid detection. Meningococci has maltose acid detection. Gonococci has no vaccines. While meningococci has a vaccine, and it's usually your type V vaccine is now available for at-risk individuals. Gonococci causes gonorrhea, septic arthritis, neonatal conjunctivitis, less than five days after birth, pelvic inflammatory disease, and Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome, which is pelvic inflammatory disease that invades your liver capsule, and it's because of that inflammation that's caused by gonorrhea. In meningococci, it's causing meningococcemia with petechial hemorrhages and gangrene toes with meningitis. You also have Waterhouse-Fredrickson syndrome, which is causing your adrenal insufficiency, fever, and your DIC and shock. You diagnose gonococci with NA to your nucleic amplification test or nucleic acid amplification test. You diagnose your meningococci with your PCR or via culture-based tests. Prophylaxis for gonorrhea is condoms and just don't have sex. And for babies, you can give them eye ointment that prevents neonatal blindness, such as erythromycin. For meningococci, you give them rifampin for prophylaxis. Again, rifampin for prophylaxis or ciprofloxacin. You can also give ceftriaxone prophylaxis in close contacts. Treatment for gonococci is ceftriaxone plus azithromycin or doxycycline for possible chlamydial co-infection. For meningococci, it's ceftriaxone or penicillin G. But alas, it's time to move on to gram-negative bacilli. We have a pseudomonas as our first one. Gram-negative rods, oxidase-positive, aerobic, and non-fermenting. And just for review, what are our oxidase-positive organisms? Our oxidase-positive organisms are VP Chen, V for Vibrio, P for Pseudomonas, C for Campylobacter, H for H. pylori, E for Exclude Enterobacteriaceae, and N for Neisseria. The clinically 
important species in Pseudomonas is of course Pseudomonas aeruginosa. So what are our distinguishing features? One, I said it was oxidase positive, they're gram-negative rods, and they're non-fermenting. The pigments are pyocyanin, which is blue-green, and fluorescein. They have a grape-like odor. Back when I was a medical technologist, when I was a laboratory supervisor, I used to love the smell of Pseudomonas aeruginosa because they had a grape-like sweet odor. They have a slime layer, and they do not ferment lactose, as you'll see on EMB and McConkie. Remember, McConkie, because they're not fermenting lactose, they do not turn red or pink. The reservoir is that it's ubiquitous in water, and when I say ubiquitous, you can find it a lot in water in wet environments. And that's very important because water-related equipment is a big, huge clue here in medical ecology. As you see, Pseudomonas will grow in ubiquitous water and soil organisms that grows to a very high number overnight in standing or distilled water or tap. Sources for infection include raw vegetables, respirators, humidifiers, sink drains, your faucet aerators, caught and potted flowers, and if they're not properly maintained in your whirlpools or bathtubs. With pseudomonas, you can have transient colonization of colons in about 10% of people. The bacteria get on skin from fecal organisms. Yes, from poop. It requires exquisitely careful housekeeping and restricted diets in burn units. So when a person has burned, pseudomonas is a major cause of infection. How do we get so sick with pseudomonas? We have endotoxin, which causes inflammation in tissues and gram-negative shock and septicemia. We also have pseudomonas exotoxin A, which is an ADP ribosylation of EF2. EF2. Elongation factor 2. It inhibits protein synthesis like what organism? Pop quiz. What organism? also inhibits elongation factor 2. You got it, it's diphtheria. The diphtheria toxin also inhibits elongation factor 2. The liver is the primary target for pseudomonas, and it has a capsule or slime layer which allows the formation of pulmonary microcolonies, difficult to remove in phagocytosis. You can see a pseudomonas infection in healthy people. You have a transient GI tract colonization, which will produce your loose stools in 10% of the population. You have hot tub folliculitis. Pseudomonas can also cause eye ulcers. Yes, your eyes are a major target for pseudomonas, and you can get that through eye ulcers, coma, or prolonged contact wearing. Yes, your contacts are a major cause of pseudomonas infection. In burn patients, pseudomonas can literally come from the gastrointestinal tract and colonize the skin, then colonize the eschar of the burn. And that will cause cellulitis, blue-green pus, and that's how you'll know it. The pus is blue-green, which will then cause septicemia. Neutropenic patients are in big danger. Pneumonia and septicemias are often super infections of pseudomonas, and you can get infections while on antibiotics. And pseudomonas is a huge cause of chronic granulomatous disease because pseudomonas is catalase positive. Pseudomonas is catalase positive. And so we ask, OMG Mark, what are like the catalase positive organisms so we can remember them? The catalase positive organisms mnemonic is catalase is notoriously bubbling, right? So catalase causes bubbling, so it's notoriously bubbling hassle. Notoriously bubbling hassle. And in notoriously bubbling hassle, the N is nocardia. And N for nocardia, B for Burkholderia sepacea, H for H. pylori, A for aspergillus, S for staph, S for serratia, L for listeria, and E for E. coli. And the mnemonic once again is notoriously bubbling hassle. And that's what catalase is, especially with CGD patients.
Septicemias will cause fever and shock with or without skin lesions. And then the skin lesions could be black necrotic center with erythematous margin, ecthyma granulosum. Ecthyma granulosum. And if you ask what ecthyma granulosum is, it's a type of skin lesion characterized by vesicles or blisters which rapidly evolve into pustules and necrotic ulcers with tender erythematous border. Ecthyma literally means a pus-forming infection with an ulcer, and then gangrenosa means gangrene or necrosis. And yep, you see that with pseudomonas infections, especially with pseudomonas septicemias. Catheterized patients very commonly have pseudomonas, and you will see them have urinary tract infections because of the catheter. Patients with cystic fibrosis very commonly have pseudomonas infections, especially seen in early pulmonary colonization, recurrent pneumonias, and they always have high slime producing strains. The diagnosis of pseudomonas infection is through gram stain and culture and you treat it with anti-pseudomonal penicillin and aminoglycosides. You prevent pseudomonas infections by pasteurization or disinfection of water related equipment. Pseudomonas love water. Hand washing is really important and you promptly remove the catheters if you're not needing them anymore. No flowers or raw vegetables in burn units guys. That's so important for the pseudomonas infections. Drug resistance in pseudomonas is very high. So intrinsic resistance, which is missing affinity or porin, some drugs enter through it with your plasmid-mediated beta-lactamases and acetylating enzymes. So clinically speaking, we have to remember that the number one most common organism seen in chronic rheumatoid disease is staph aureus. Number two is Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Neutrophil phagocytosis is so important because you will see very commonly patients with Pseudomonas infections if your neutrophils aren't up to par. And let's talk about clinical correlation in regards to S-chars. You have two possible ways that you can look at black S-chars, right? One. Is it due to occupational exposure or bioterrorism? And two. Is this patient immunocompromised? If it's an occupational exposure or bioterrorism and you have black S-char, you're usually looking at bacillus anthracis. But when you're looking at black necrotic centers in immunocompromised patient, especially those with CGD, and you'll see ecthyma granulosum, which is caused by Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Other common CGD in Infections include Staph aureus, Serratia maricans, Listeria species, E. coli, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, Nocardia, Aspergillus, Candida. And remember, these are all catalase positive. That's how you remember them. And catalase positive organisms are notoriously bubbling hassle. Moving on to our next genus, which is Legionella. Legionella are weakly gram-negative pleomorphic rods requiring cysteine and iron. Cysteine and iron. And they are also water organisms, just like Pseudomonas is. And the one species that we're looking at is Legionella pneumophila. Legionella pneumophila stains poorly with gram stain. Obviously makes them gram-negative. They're fastidious, requiring iron and cysteine for laboratory culture. Cysteine and iron. And CYE, which is charcoal yeast extract. It's facultative intracellular. Your reservoirs include river streams, amoebae, air conditioning, water cooler tanks, and it's transmitted by aerosols from contaminated air conditioning. And remember, Regionella has no human-to-human -human transmission, which means you can't catch this from another human. Predisposing factors are smokers or 55 years or older with a high alcohol intake. Immunosuppressed patients, such as patients with renal transplants, can get Legionella. This bugger makes you sick by facultative 
intracellular pathogens and endotoxins. Legionella can cause Legionnaire's disease, which is an atypical pneumonia. It's associated with air conditioning systems, which is now routinely decontaminated. Pneumonia can cause mental confusion. It causes diarrhea, but there is no Legionella in the GI tract. That's just one of the symptoms of Legionnaire's disease. You can also have Pontiac fever, which is a lesser version of Legionnaire's disease, and you can get pneumonitis, which have no fatalities, while Legionnaire's disease has a fairly high mortality rate. You can diagnose it through direct fluorescent antibody or DFA on biopsy and positive by deuterally silver stain. You can have an antigen urine test for one serum group only and a fourfold increase in antibodies due to Legionella. You treat it by fluoroquinolones or azithromycin or erythromycin with rifampin. Again, fluoroquinolones or azithromycin or you can have erythromycin with rifampin for immunocompromised patients. Drug must penetrate human cells because Legionella is facultatively intracellular and you'll see it mostly inside cells. So whatever you're giving it, this drug has to penetrate human cells. Fluoroquinolones, azithromycin or erythromycin with rifampin for immunocompromised patients. The prevention is you just make sure the air conditionings and cooling tanks are being cleaned. So on the USMLE, your big clues for Legionella pneumophila are, is this an elderly person? Are they a smoker? Are they a heavy drinker? Or are they immunosuppressed? Are they exposed to aerosols of water? And most importantly, is it causing atypical pneumonia? Our next genus is Francisella. The important organism that we're looking at with Francisella is Francisella tularensis. It's a gram-negative small rod, and it's facultatively intracellular. Scary thing about Francisella, it has a potential for bio-warfare, but it is usually seen as a zoonotic disease. For some reason, when I think of Francisella tularensis, I think of bunnies, which is fairly accurate. It's seen in many species like wild animals, especially in rabbits, deer, and rodents. Tularenses, like the two bunny ears, that's how I remember it. It's usually seen in tick bites by the dermacentor tick. Dermacentor. Francisella tularensis causes an ulceroglandular disease, and it's characterized by fever, ulcer at the bite site, and regional lymph node enlargement and necrosis. You have traumatic implantation with it while skinning rabbits. Again, ulceroglandular disease with that. And you can also get it through aerosols, and you will get pneumonia out of that. Ingestion, you can get Francisella through ingestion of undercooked meat, undercooked rabbits, infected meat, or contaminated water, which produces typhoidal tularemia. Typhoidal tularemia. Francisella, again, is a facultative intracellular pathogen. It localizes in reticuloendothelial cells. Again, Francisella tularensis is a facultative intracellular pathogen that localizes in reticuloendothelial cells. You will get a granulomatous response with it. Tularemia is endemic in every state in the United States, but it's highest in Arkansas and Missouri. I guess I do a lot of rabbit skinning in Arkansas and Missouri. You can diagnose it through serodiagnosis, and you don't culture it because obviously culturing it would be hazardous as it can create aerosols. And again, potential for biowarfare here. The DFA can be used, but you treat it with streptomycin. Streptomycin is an aminoglycoside, and aminoglycosides target the 30S subunits of the bacteria. You prevent it by protecting yourself against tick bites. We wear gloves while you're butchering the poor rabbits. And you also have a live attenuated vaccine for persons with high risk. Since Francisella is a facultative intercellular organism, it's good for us to just go over that some nasty bugs may live facultatively. Some nasty bugs may live facultatively. Salmonella, Neisseria, Brucella, 
Mycobacterium, Listeria, Francisella, Legionella, Yersinia. Those are all our facultative intracellular organisms. Your clinical clues on the USMLE with Francisella turlorensis are A. Hunter with ulceroglandular disease, atypical pneumonia, or, grass, or gastrointestinal diseases. You'll see this person coming from Arkansas or Missouri, and this person can also be exposed to rabbits, deers, and ticks. Especially what tick? The dermacenter tick. The next genus is Bordetella. Obviously, the clinical important species here is Bordetella pertussis. They're gram-negative small rods, and they are strict aerobes. Strict aerobes. They're encapsulated, so encapsulated organism here, big clue. Reservoir is human, and people should be vaccinated for this. Transmission is respiratory droplets. Bordetella pertussis is a mucosal surface pathogen. Its attachment to nasopharyngeal ciliated epithelial cells is via filamentous hemagglutinin, and the pertussis toxin on the outer membrane aids in its attachment. The toxins may damage your respiratory epithelium and these toxins are important because there's four of them. Number one. Adenylate cyclase toxin which impairs leukocyte chemotaxis and inhibits phagocytosis and it causes local edema. Number two. Tracheal acytotoxin which interferes with ciliary action. It kills ciliated cells. Number three is endotoxin. Number four is pertussis toxin. It has an AMB component and an OM protein toxin. ADP ribosylation of GI. So this is the G subunit now, the GI subunit, which inhibits the negative regulator of adenylate cyclase. Now we're looking at Bordetella pertussis inhibiting the negative regulator of your adenylate cyclase. So that means it shoots up the adenylate cyclase, then shooting up CAMP. It interferes with the transfer of signals from cell surface to your intracellular mediator system. And what does that cause? It causes lymphocytosis promotion, islet activation, which then causes hypoglycemia. It blocks your immune effector cells and increases histamine. Most specifically, it increases your sensitivity towards it. Clinically, let's go over the stages of whooping cough caused by your pertussis bacteria versus your results of bacterial culture. Your incubation for your whooping cough is 7 to 10 days. Catarrhal phase is 1 to 2 weeks. Paroxysmal is 2 to 4 weeks. And convalescent is 3 to 4 weeks or longer. With 7 to 10 days, you don't really see the effects of Bordetella pertussis. You seem fine. And then that's when you have your incubation incubation period, you don't have any symptoms. But your second week, you will get rhinorrhea, malaise, sneezing, and anorexia. You're going to stop wanting, wanting to eat. On your third, you have paroxysmal, which is two to four weeks. You have repetitive coughs, whoops, vomiting, leukocytosis, and in your convalescent phase, three to four weeks later, like almost a month later, you'll have diminished paroxysmal cough, development secondary complications as pneumonia, seizures, and encephalopathy. Now, your bacterial culture will grow really quickly in one to two weeks and start dropping off from there. This is a fastidious or delicate organism with Reagan Lau or Bordet Zhengzhou on media, either direct cough plates or nasopharyngeal cultures. It's difficult to culture from the middle of your paroxysmal phase, so you can also use direct immunofluorescence or DFA on nasopharyngeal smear, a P 
PCR and serologic tests are available. You treat this through supportive care, through hospitalization, less than six months old. You can use erythromycin for 14 days. And remember, erythromycin is a macrolide targeting your 50S subunit. And other macrolides can also be given. You prevent this through vaccination, your DTaP vaccine. It's an acellular pertussis vaccine with filamentous hemagglutinin plus the pertussis toxoid. The immunity wanes within five to seven years. The next gram-negative rod is brucella. It's a gram-negative rod of aerobic zoonosis, facultative intracellular pathogen, and a potential, another one that has a potential for bio-warfare. So there's three medically important species under brucella, which is your brucella abortus, which you can see in cattle. Abortus in cattle. Brucella melitensis in goats. Melitensis in goats. Brucella suis in pigs. Suis in pigs. One more time for memory, Brucella abortus, cattle. Brucella melitensis, goats. Brucella suis, pigs. Serologic confirmation for disease is the most common. You usually transmit brucella through your unpasteurized dairy products. In California and Texas has the highest number of cases and is mostly associated with a travel to Mexico. Having direct contacts with animals and working in a slaughterhouse can get you brucella or brucellosis. It infects us by having an endotoxin. It is a facultative intracellular parasite and it localizes in our reticuloendothelial system, which can then cause septicemia. It causes a granulomatous response with a central necrosis. The disease is called brucellosis, causing an undulant fever. The word undulant is a key word for brucellosis, but USMLE obviously just won't put undulant fever. You just have to remember that undulant means it's having a rising and falling motion or appearance like that of waves. It comes and goes. It can cause acute septicemia. Brucellosis can have a fever of 100 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's often in the evening. Influenza-like symptoms including arthralgias, anorexia, myalgia, back pain. You get profuse sweating with brucellosis and hepatomegaly. The undulant form of it is milder and often as a result of incomplete treatment. And the chronic form, which can last for literally more than a year, is usually by brucella melitensis, oh. seen in goats. Brucella melitensis, usually in older people. And the chronic form can have cyclic bouts of depression and sweating. The fever is rare with chronic forms and then you can get ocular complications with the chronic form. Uveitis in 5-10% to 10 of the patients as well as chronic fatigue. You don't culture brucella because it's hazardous. So you do a serum agglutination test which is a fourfold increase in the titer and antibodies against the brucella is more than 1 to 160 that are considered positive. The treatment is rifampin with doxycycline with a minimum of 6 weeks. Long time treatment but necessary. In children you give them rifampin or cotrimoxazole. So let's talk about the treatment. The rifampin, obviously we know that rifampin blocks mRNA synthesis by blocking your RNA polymerase. Your doxycycline is a tetracycline, right? It blocks your 30S subunit. And with children, if we're giving rifampin and cotrimoxazole, that's cotrimoxazole aka TMPSMX, which blocks your tetrahydrofolate synthesis pathway. The sulfonamide portion drops your hydropterate synthetase, while your trimethoprim blocks your dihydrofolate reductase. 
So again, you treat your adults with rifampirin and doxycycline for a minimum of six weeks, and you treat the children with rifampin and cotrimoxazole, aka TMPSMX. You prevent this through vaccination of the cattle, or you can pasteurize your milk, especially your goat's milk. This would be a good time to go over your zoonotic organisms. Your brucella, your bacillus anthracis, your hysteria monocytogenes, your salmonella enteritidis, campylobacter, chlamydophila, cetaceae, your francisella terensis, and your sinia pestis are very common zoonotic organisms. Brucella caused by milk or after birth or by lymph nodes, aerosols, cattle, pigs, goats, Brucella bordis cattle, melatensis goats, Suez pigs, Bacillus anthracis by cattle and sheep, it's a gram positive spore forming, the serum monocytogenes by cattle, goats, cold cuts. That's why the CDC in the United States advises that those over 50 years old reheat lunch meats to a steaming hot 165 degrees Fahrenheit or 74 degrees Celsius and use them within 4 days. Salmonella enteritidis you can see in chicken and eggs, Campylobacter you can see in poultry, cattle, ostrich, shellfish, Chlamydophila cetaceae these spirochete buggers are seen in birds and poultry, maybe cattle and sheep but mostly feral birds such as your parrots. Francisella tularensis you can see those in rabbits, hence the name rabbit fever. You can see them in ticks as well, the dermacenter tick, and your Yersinia pestis, of course, has caused the black plague. You can see those in fleas, rats, especially your brown rats. Your rodents are your natural reservoir for these fleas, and it's seen in your marmot squirrels. The next genus is Campylobacter. Campylobacter are gram-negative curved rods with polar flagella seen like gulls wings on microscopy. The important Campylobacter is Campylobacter jejuni. Distinguishing features include microaerophilic. It grows well at 42 degrees Celsius. It likes heat. So remember, we like to go to camp. Camping is should be hot. 42 degrees on selective media, camp medium or scaro agar. Its natural reservoirs are in your intestinal tract of cattle, of humans, sheep, goats, poultry, and because Campylobacter Jejuni likes it hot, it needs a special incubator of 42 degrees Celsius. Poultry is huge with Campylobacter jejuni, primarily in poultry through fecal oral transmission. You need a very low infectious dose as you as 500 with Campylobacter jejuni. It invades the mucosa of the colon, it destroys your mucosal surfaces, and it causes blood and pus in your stools, which is what's called inflammatory diarrhea. The good news is it rarely penetrates to cause septicemia, but it does cause gastroenteritis. It's a common cause of infectious diarrhea worldwide, but in the United States, Campylobacter enteritis is more common than Salmonella plus Shigella combined. A Campylobacter jejuni gastroenteritis can cause 10 or more stools a day and may be frankly bloody. You can have abdominal pain, fever, malaise, nausea, and vomiting. It's generally self-limiting though within 3 to 5 days, but it may last longer. But the major complication, major, major complication of Campylobacter jejuni is the GBS, which is Guillain-Barre syndrome which is 30% of the GBS in the United States due to the zero type O19. Again, 
GBS due to serotype O19, antigenic cross-reactivity between Campylobacter jejuni oligosaccharides and glycosphingolipids in your neural tissue is what causes this, and it can also cause reactive arthritis. This bugger can culture at 42 degrees on scaro agar or campy medium. The treatment is mostly supported by fluid and electrolyte replacement because it really rarely causes septicemia. It's usually self-limiting. The problem with it is it causes Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's 30%. That's huge in the zero type, zero type O19. While well, 30% are due to Campylobacter jejuni, 10% as a matter of fact can be caused by a virus, which is your cytomegalovirus or your CMV or your HHV5. The next genus is Helicobacter. It's a gram-negative spiral gastric bacilli with flagella. It's microaerophilic, 37 degrees growth by Campy or Scaroagar, and it's oxidase positive. And the species of medical importance, it's H. pylori or Helicobacter pylori. Of course, it's urease positive. We always talk about it in our P. chunks mnemonic. It's reservoir in humans, and its transmission is through fecal-oral or oral-to-oral. -oral. And the urease positive causes an ammonium cloud which neutralizes your stomach acid, allowing survival in the stomach during transit. It has mucinase, which aids in penetration of the mucus layer, and that causes a rapid shift down to neutral as it penetrates. And it's invasive into the stomach lining where pH is neutral. The inflammation is prominent and has two biotypes, type 1 and type 2, while type 1 produces vacuolating cytotoxins. H. pylori causes chronic gastritis and duodenal ulcers and associated with several forms of stomach cancer, gastric adenocarcinoma, gastric mucosa-associated lymphoid tissue lymphoma or maltoma, M-A-L-T-O-M-A or a B-cell lymphoma and it's now classed by WHO as a type 1 carcinogen. So you diagnose it through biopsy with culture and histology with GEMSA or silver stain. You can also diagnose it through the H. pylori breath test it's a test where you will be asked to exhale into a balloon-like bag. The amount of carbon dioxide is then measured into this bag and it's measured to provide a baseline. The next step, you will be asked to drink a small amount of solution. The solution contains urea. 15 minutes after drinking the solution, you will exhale into a second bag. The amount of C13 urea is swallowed and then you will exhale ammonia plus C13 and carbon dioxide and that's measured. The point of the test is that the H pylori, if it's present, it breaks down the urea in the solution that you just drank, then releases carbon dioxide in the breath that you exhale. So if the amount of carbon dioxide in your second sample is higher than the amount of your first sample, you have a positive presence for H. pylori. Obviously, you can't be currently on antibiotics or PPIs before testing. Another test that we can do is a stool antigen test for H. pylori, which is an ELISA-based assay to detect released H. pylori antigen. Again, you'll have to discontinue your antibiotics and PPIs prior to testing for this. A third test for H. pylori is through serology, IgM, Ig, IgG. IgM and IgA, of course, are transient, and IgG are detectable about 21 days post-infection and remain elevated for years 
host eradication, but this has low sensitivity and specificity. But the good news is PPIs do not need to be discontinued with this, and it's easy specimen collection. It's widespread availability and it has low cost. And when I say low sensitivity, it's like 76 to 84 percent, and specificity is 79 to 85 percent. You treat H. pylori with a myriad of regimens. The first one is omeprazole plus amoxicillin plus clarithromycin is one example of the triple therapy. You treat that for 10 to 14 days. Well, you can also do the quadruple therapy. And the quadruple therapy is specifically used in areas where clarithromycin resistance is more than 15%. So with quadruple therapy, you give a PPI plus your bismuth sulfate plus two antibiotics, which are your metronidazole and tetracycline. Quadruple therapy is PPI plus bismuth plus two antibiotics, metronidazole, and tetracycline. Some key clues to remember are your patient has gastritis or ulcers with stomach cancer, it's gram-negative, helicobacilli, it's oxidase-positive, and it's urease-positive, and it's also microaerophilic. It belongs in your P-chunks and your VP-chen mnemonics. VP-chen stands for Vibrio Pseudomonas Campylobacter H. pylori, exclude your Enterobacteriaceae, and Neisseria. P-chunks mnemonic stands for Proteus, Cryptococcus, H. pylori, Urea, Plasma, Nocardia, Klebsiella, Staph, Sapro, and Staph epi. Important to note that the P in P-chunks is Proteus, while the P in VP-chen is Pseudomonas. The next genus is Vibrio. Vibrio, gram-negative curved rods with polar flagella, oxidase positive. Vibrio is not an Enterobacteriaceae, it is a Vibrionaceae. Growth on alkaline, alkaline, but not acidic media, TCBS, thiosulfate, citrate bile salt, sucrose medium. And the species of medical importance are Vibrio cholerae, Vibrio parahemolyticus, and Vibrio vulnificus. Let's start with Vibrio cholerae. Vibrio cholerae O1 is divided by biotypes L-tor, which is now predominant, and cholerae, which is classic. Vibrio cholerae O139 also produces the cholera toxin. It has a shooting star motility inactivated by specific serum. The reservoir is a human colon with no vertebrate animal carriers. It's usually copepods or shellfish may be contaminated by water contamination. Human carriage may persist after untreated infection for months after the infection and the permanent carrier state is rare. In layman's terms, you may be pooping this out months after an untreated infection. So the transmission is a fecal-oral spread. It's sensitive to stomach acid, so it requires a high dose of more than 10 to the 7th power, or 10 million organisms if stomach acid is normal. Vibrio has high motility, and it also has this thing called mucinase, and has a toxin, an enterotoxin to be exact. But first, let me tell you about its pili. It's called the toxin co-regulated pili or TCP that aids in attachment to the intestinal mucosa. So these three things, motility, mucinase, and the TCP or your toxin co-regulated pili attach to your intestinal mucosa. That's why Vibrio is so easy to infect even with the stomach acid, but you do need a lot because the stomach acid will kill it. So let's go back to the toxin. I talked about toxin and the toxin is an enterotoxin called cholerogen, which is similar to the E. coli heat labile toxin or the LT toxin. ADP ribosylates GS subunit alpha, GS alpha subunit, activating your adenylate cyclase. 
thus increasing CAMP, causing an efflux of your chloride and your water, which is activated through persistent activation of adenylate cyclase. The disease is cholera, rice water stools with tremendous fluid loss. Hypovolemic shock can be as a result if not treated. You can diagnose this through culture on stool TCBS and oxidase positive. Vibrio is oxidase positive as in your VP Chen. You treat patients with fluid and electrolyte replacement, but the antibiotic that you use with Vibrio is doxycycline or ciprofloxacin, which shorten the disease and reduce the carriage. Use ciprofloxacin if there is resistance to the tetracycline. You prevent this through proper sanitation and new vaccination. Other Vibrio species include Vibrio parahemolyticus. Parahemolyticus comes from marine life. It lives in salt water, consumes undercooked or raw seeds, food, the disease is gastroenteritis, and you also need a lot, 10 to the 5th power of colony, colony forming units or CFUs per ml. The symptoms are watery diarrhea with cramping and abdominal pain, it's self-limiting. You need 100,000 CFUs for this disease to grab hold of you. The next species is Vibrio vulnificus. Vibrio vulnificus is from brackish waters. I personally had Vibrio vulnificus infection because I ate a lot of raw oysters and that's what you see these in. Your consumption of undercooked or raw seafood, swimming in brackish water, shucking oysters, that's me. And then you can get gastroenteritis. You can also get though cellulitis if you start swimming in these brackish waters. Yes, you do get the watery diarrhea and the cramping abdominal pain, same as Vibrio parahemolyticus, but the cellulitis part of Vibrio vulnificus rapidly spreads and it's very difficult to treat. Again, Vibrio vulnificus, unlike parahemolyticus, causes cellulitis. Vulnificus makes you vulnerable to cellulitis. Rapid spread and it's difficult to treat. Parahemolyticus is self-limiting while Vibrio vulnificus, you require tetracycline third generation cephalosporin. And that concludes our gram-negative rods, not including the Enterobacteriaceae on the next chapter. Yay! And that concludes our microbiology chapter 5, gram-negative bacilli except for Enterobacteriaceae and spirochetes, which we will cover on the next chapter. As always, you can email us at usmle at gmail.com for your questions, anything you need cleared, or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning for USMLE Step 1. Sources for USMLE Listen include First Aid, Osmosis, UWorld, and Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark Labella. You can follow or message me on Instagram at MarkJLabella. See you on the next episode for your auditory learning here at USMLE Listen. <laughs>